Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Ryan Cooper, and uh, Alexi the Greek is still uh, not available. Um, Heaven only knows where he's run off to. However, to compensate, this time we have two guests. We have the venerable Left Anchor veteran, Jeff Spross. Hello, everyone. (laughs) Welcome, Jeff. And then we also have Chris Arnand. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Arnadi. Arnadi, sorry. I, I have to screw up at least one pronunciation in, <laughs> in every episode and usually more than one. Um, but yeah, welcome, Chris. Uh, thank you for having me. And Chris has a new book, uh, which is which has just come out uh, a couple of weeks ago or something. It's called Dignity, and it's sort of a collection of um, stories and testimonials and pictures about kind of the American underclass, you might say, and um, it, it reminds me of um, what's the what's that old book, uh, Hard Times by I'm forgetting his name, but some of those Great Depression books uh, that were just going around the country and, and talking to people who are sort of struggling to get by. Oh, that's going to bother me. I'm going to remember it in a, in a minute, though. But so. Anyways, to, to, to get us started here, Chris, I thought, you know, m- maybe you could give us just a little bit of, of you know, your bio and how you, how you ended up kind of working on this project, because it's a little unconventional how you uh, ended up, you know, as a sort of photojournalist in, you know, uh, broke uh, rural communities and so on. Yeah, um, well, thank you both for having read the book. Um, I appreciate that. Anybody who reads a book of mine, um, I'm always appreciative of. Um, yeah, I was um, I had a weird path. Uh, I grew up in a small town in the south. Um, I escaped the town pretty quickly when I could. Um, went off and got a PhD in uh, in theoretical physics um, in Hopkins, Johns Hopkins, and then from there ended up on Wall Street, where I was a bond trader for 20 years. Um, uh, at the firm that um, Michael Lewis was in, Solomon Brothers. Um, And I was there during the rise of uh, financial derivatives, which I was partially responsible for. And I was there during the financial crisis, which I was partially responsible for. And um, left in roughly 2012, after almost exactly 20 years on Wall Street. I left because... um, of frustration with my my industry, a growing frustration that kind of reached its zenith around shortly after the financial crisis. And part of the way I dealt with my frustration was kind of just going through immensely long walks throughout New York City, often 20 miles. Um, and one of the goals of those walks, one of the goals, of the, one of the, one of the, the goals, the walks evolved into basically me being kind of a reflection of my frustration with kind of the world I was living in, the world of finance. But more than that, the world of kind of what I, I now call the front row, which is kind of elite culture, um, which is kind of focused on. I mean, I was literally sitting behind computer screens, uh, you know, and, and making decisions based on those computer screens, um, on those numbers on those computer screens. And I realized that maybe that way of thinking about life was a little limited. And that maybe actually, you know, talking to people <laughs> um, and looking at the consequences of the actions, our actions on Wall Street was probably was another way of learning. And so, you know, those walks had turned into what I guess would be called ethnography light, which is just basically listening to people and kind of letting them their stories and their 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 um, suggestions guide me. Um, and it ended up guiding me into what was. Um, probably statistically, I think one of the worst neighborhoods in New York at the time it was has gotten a lot better. So I don't want to beat it up too much, but it's in the South Bronx, Hunts Point. It's uh, part of the district, I believe, of AOC. Um, And uh, it's kind of why I say New York puts the things it doesn't, no one else wants. So kind of waste disposal um, um, sites uh, and other such things that kind of the city, no one else will, and the city will accept. Um, but it's also probably statistically perhaps one of the poorest congressional districts in the United States. Um, has, I think, 50% of the residents, roughly 40 to 50% are below poverty. 
Um, it's all Hispanic or black. There's, I think it's 98%, maybe 1% white. Um, and it leads in crime and other statistics. Um, and part of the reason I went there was that's just kind of where my walks were taking me into neighborhoods like that. Um, because, you know, partially because what I was seeing in those kind of bad neighborhoods was far different from what I was told I would, I would find. You know, I was told I would find kind of a complete utter chaos, but, um, and a lot of danger. Whereas what I found was a kind of, you know, people making the best of what they, with the best out of a, a tough situation, a lot of community, a lot of beauty, uh, um, but none of it really kind of what I'd call approved by our broader culture. You know, they were kind of taking things that the wealthy and the elites kind of discard or look down on and making and turning those into their form of kind of entertainment or, or art or what have you. Um, and so I was drawn more and more into those, this one particular neighborhood. And I end up spending, end up quitting my job on Wall Street and spending roughly three years documenting that neighborhood and in particular a, a community of uh, street addicts um, within that neighborhood um, who were um, what probably called lifetime um, heroin users um, who were living in and out of shelters, um, under bridges, in cars, on top of roofs. Um, and uh, some of them were sex workers. Others were what they call scrappers who would just basically um, find metal and then cart it off and get it, get it and exchange it for money. Um, so it's not a conventional route <laughs> by any stretches, but, uh, you know, I, I get asked the question a lot why I did it. I'm not really sure why other than just kind of was where my, you know, kind of where I was drawn. Yeah. I mean, and that, <clears throat> that's something that struck me a little bit. You know, I, I, um, I lived in New York for, for about nine months back in 2008 and 2009. And one thing that I didn't really expect, I mean, I guess I probably knew it on some intellectual level, but you think New York, you think sort of hipsters and re really rich people, um, you know, Wall Street and whatnot. And, uh, you know, I was living in a part, uh, of, actually on Manhattan, Washington Heights, right? And you think, okay, yeah, this is center of global capitalism, but not there. And, that, you know, this is where the Dominicans, at least back in those days, Dominicans and Orthodox Jews lived. And I worked at a, um, a grocery store at 187th and Broadway. Um, and, you know, occasionally walk, walk around um, going to the, to the Bronx and so on. And I guess that, that part jumped out at me in particular because, yeah, you take the train down, you know, into South Manhattan and it's just like the most wretched excess you could possibly imagine, you know, and even, you know, just from the street, you see, you barely see a piece of it, but just a few miles away, as you're saying, it's this, this, um, you know, some of the poorest communities in the entire country. And I think that, you know, it, it can be easy to forget how that, you know, those two are part of the same city, you know, and it's, it's a really sharp dichotomy. Yeah, I mean, I you know, I was literally told by many people, like, you know, lifelong residents of New York City and lifelong residents of Brooklyn, by the way, who had never been to, like, East New York, which, or they've been through it. East New York is another neighborhood I spent in, which is entirely black neighborhood in central, central Brooklyn that I don't think has been gentrified yet. It certainly wasn't gentrified when I was going there. Um, but, uh, you know, <laughs> there are people who, who, who counted themselves lifelong residents of Brooklyn who had never been to East New York, you know, and other than in a cab that zoomed through it to get to the to JFK. And part of what drew, drew me in to Hunt's Point was um, is, it, is the neighborhood in the South Bronx. There was a lot of reasons. One is, is it, it's, it's kind of isolated. It's, it's like a tongue of land that sticks out into the East River. If you kind of dropped, you, you fly over it sometimes if you're landing in LaGuardia, if you're coming from the north, um, it, uh, it's between, it's it kind of, it's between LaGuardia and, um, it's, it's kind of, if you take a line and go directly north from LaGuardia, you'll hit kind of, uh, Hunts Point, um, after going through Rikers. Um, but what drew me in was it was this kind of isolated community that kind of 
was so different from the rest of New York in many ways, and it was only yet, <laughs> you know, 15-minute car ride away from the probably one of the wealthiest neighborhoods in the United States. And it was just kind of, you know, we, we know we have a lot of inequality in this country, but to see it in the bastion of liberalism, you know, here, here we are in New York City who think we're a city that prides itself on its progressiveness, having this massive wealth inequality and racial inequality that was just, you know, so stark and uh, so jarring that, you know, it just really – so part of the project became political because I, I, you know, even though I counted myself a progressive and, you know, all my life and was certainly considered myself to be um, open-minded, it was pretty shocking to realize I'm living in a city and there's, there's this, you know, there's this entirely lived re- different re- lived reality only, you know, 10 miles away from my home. I mean, I knew that. I knew that all the time I was in New York. I just never, you know, not to the extent where I was actually spending my, you know, spending as, you know, time in Hunts Point like I eventually spent time in. And it it was just, you know, a lot of people say, you know, you have to get out of, uh, we need, people need to get out of the uh, Acela corridor. Well, just get off the Acela. I mean, (laughs) the Acela literally goes through, the Acela goes through Hunts Point. There's a, there's a shooting gallery, um, which is where people shoot up heroin. That is literally above the the Excella. The Excella goes under it. <laughs> so there are times when I'm sitting there in the shooting gallery with people shooting up, you know, just talking to them, taking their picture or what have you. And then you know, you look you look down and the Excella goes zooming by, you know. So um, it, it's it's really, you know, these pockets of poverty that I ended up. And then after the Hunts Point, I ended up getting in my car and doing the same thing all across the country. Um, putting like 180,000 miles eventually on my car. But these pocket of poverty these pockets of poverty that I document and I go to are not you know they're not they're, they're often very adjacent to very wealthy neighborhoods and that's what's so jarring about them. You know, you can, I, you can in any given time I mean it's like the one of the places I spent time in was Gary, Indiana and that's really not that far from Chicago. Um, you know, um, and the South, South Chicago is very different than North Chicago, as you guys oh, yeah. know. And so it's just like these differences and these, and these, this inequality that we talk about, it, it's just really, it's, it's not a red state, blue state thing. It's everywhere. Actually. Yeah. I was, yeah. Oh, Je- one second, Jeff, uh, studs Turkle. That's the name of the guy <laughs> I was trying to remember. <laughs> But yeah, go, go ahead, Jeff. You want to jump in there? Yeah, well, I was going to – the thing I was going to ask is like I think one of the really interesting things about this book is I, I know in the reception to it, it's been kind of lumped in with like uh, Hillbilly Elegy or Alienated America, which are both like books written by conservatives. Um, that the Like fair or not, the reception has kind of like placed the book like in the same genre of like – person goes out to explore the white working class that voted for Trump. And what I think is interesting about this book is that it didn't, it's not that right. It, you began at Hunt's point, which is like one of the base, which is just like one of the kind of the characteristic neighborhoods of the African-American underclass. Um, you checked out places that are rural. You checked out places that are urban. You checked out white communities, black communities, immigrant communities and so i was i i i think the first thing i was going to ask you is if you could speak to like how that initial experience in hunts point like propelled you out to all those other places and how how much did you think about it how much did you have a strategy or plan or an ethos that you wanted to follow in terms of like how you took this project from your initial experience at hunts point to something much more intentional across the rest of the country Right. Um, you know, it's, it's, the answer is kind of humorous, be only because to the degree that people have criticized what I do, one of, one of the broad criticism is, is just, again, is like, how dare you only, how dare you talk about Trump voters? Mm-hmm. I mean, as you, as you pick, as you realize, I think 50 to 60% of the book is in minority communities. There's actually more minority voices in the book than there are white voices. Um, and partly what part of the reason I left Hunts Point was I was doing a project on addiction at that time. There was no political angle beyond the politics of inequality. And it, and it was part of the criticism or a suggestion I got from some black leaders was 
you know, poverty isn't just about African Americans, and to write about poverty, uh, poverty and addiction within the African American community is is unfair if you don't show it also can be in white communities. <laughs> so, um, hmm. and and that was a fair, and I thought that was a fair point, which is you know, if I'm going to only and to be. My other response was yes, but yes, some of the addicts in the in the in the in Bronx are actually whites who come to the neighborhood drawn by the drugs. Um, but you know, so I said, yeah, that's that's a fair that's a fair point. I should probably show that addiction's not just within the addiction the black community. Poverty and addiction is not just confined to blacks, and therefore not only a problem with you know don't stigmatize minorities by saying here here's poverty. Um, so I, I actually made a check. A decision to go to some white working class towns, and this was before the rise of Trump. Um, so it had nothing to do with Trump. It was just simply, you know, yeah, let's let's. He, and, and I actually went and looked at the statistics and looked at poverty, looked at addiction, and and tried to balance the the communities I saw as a reflection of kind of that fit the broader statistics. So that in general, I, you know, I, I gave a fair representation, both geographically, racially. Um, so there was that kind of angle, um, but the project started as it evolved in a scientific sense from saying I learned I did three years in Hunts Point. Here's these things I learned. I learned about massive inequality. I learned how I felt the you know what I call the front row, the elites, um, the, the the political class, the centrist political class. How, how everything they do is to is to rig the system against the poor and against the 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 less less educated what I call the back row, and I saw that in Hunts Point how everything is stacked against them everything, um, the legal system the educational system the the um, the police how the police uh, how the how the law is applied everything, and um, and I also started seeing these other things about how in these communities what was what, what people were were relying on was what I call non-economic forms of meaning, faith and place, the importance of both of those. And I said, well, I've learned this. Let me see if it's true elsewhere. Let's see if it's translationally invariant. So I started going to other places. Um, and um, you know, I went to Buffalo, New York. I went to New Haven. I went to places initially I could drive to pretty quickly and not you know, leave my family for too long. And uh, Baltimore, um, Washington, D.C., Boston, um, Maine, um, Vermont, um, and then that just started to evolve into this idea: like, okay, let me, I'm going to put together ten, a list of ten cities across the United States that I think are kind of statistically reflective of um, uh, on balance. And so it became kind of a, you know, just kind of just a ping ponging across the United States thing. Um, and then that things then it evolved. It would change. I would drive through a place and be. Gary, Indiana, ended up being on my list only because I kept driving. My daughter lives in um, Wisconsin, and so I would drive through Gary to get up to her um, and spend time there. And I was focusing also on Milwaukee because Milwaukee is the most segregated city in the United States, and I wanted to document that. Um, and Gary kept coming up on my. I just. I drive through, and I would stop there, and I would just be drawn in by, by you know, the by both the combination of how 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 much it was suffering, but how much community there was still left, and so eventually I went back to to Gary, Indiana. Okay, yeah, and actually, the the other thing I was going to ask is, what did you what did you find in terms of both? similarities and differences between all these different communities. I mean, was your experience one of like largely a repeating pattern of, uh, you know, experiences, uh, values, efforts to claim dignity, uh, grievances with the rest of society, all that kind of thing. Were there significant differences between the communities you saw in those regards? Or was it like, or was it mostly the same? Because like you, you have the whole kind of back row, front row framework that you derive from all this. So I was wondering like how much that applied. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, that's what that's where the back row, front row came out of it. Which I started realizing that it didn't matter if I was in a black working class town or a white working class town. Um, both faced immense obstacles. Um, I'm not saying the black working class didn't face more obstacles. I'm just saying both. I'm just saying the 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 sum of the obstacles that would a white working class town would face would be less than the sum of the obstacles a black working class would face. But they both were very very large compared to the obstacles in a wealthy neighborhood. So 
there was more in common between the white working class and the black and working class than there was between either of them and and um and the wealthy and so you know i'm not trying to discount the role of race i write a whole chapter about racism but what the frustration was and still is to this level is that they you know Gary feels very much, I mean, the one that was striking to me was Portsmouth, Ohio, which is a largely 98% white, I think, or 95% white, um, where facing the opioid addiction, felt very much in many ways like Hunts Point and the Bronx. I mean, yes, (laughs) one's Hispanic and one's white, but what's happening there now and how it's playing out and how it's how it's and how the people are having to deal with it is very very similar both have you know been denied um job job opportunities both have had um legal job opportunities um and both have um lost a lot of what i call community and into the into the and, and into the vacuum has come drugs and and illegal activity and the as the process goes on and on one generation to the next as an as the communities start get facing stigma for being drug communities it gets worse and worse and it becomes this runaway train where just kind of everything breaks down um and so the similarities there in terms of what people deal with and how it plays out is 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 greater than the differences although again i don't want to deny i'm not trying to diminish how much minority communities face in terms of racism yeah how that's an that how that's another just another layer of and another obstacle they have in their way um yeah right this this maybe brings up you know uh it's it's a kind of sensitive uh topic i would say especially in elite uh media spaces because there's been this enormous effort to um, pin the the Trump victory on just pure unfiltered racism that it didn't have anything to do with economics. There's this whole book I think it's called uh, Identity Crisis that was trying to establish this proposition. Um, and you know, fr- from my sense of you know d- uh, reading your conversations with um, black and and maybe to a lesser extent Hispanic working class and very and poor uh, communities. They generally um, sort of have a pretty good idea of, you know, what the problem is. You know, the the problem is how the economy has been rigged against them and the, and the whole legal system and everything else. Um, but uh, my hypothesis among the, the 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 white working class is that there is a very significant degree of of race prejudice there. Um, but there is also a significant perception of the same thing that the black working class community is is talking about and the the really hardcore trump people um who are just drenching themselves in fox news day in and day out i think tend to maybe be a little bit more wealthy they tend to be your sort of petty bourgeois ski do dealership owner type of people and that's you know you know, reading your conversations and also from like my personal observations and and so on. But, you know, can you speak to that divide? Would you say that, 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 that the white working class is, is seeing things clearly at all? I think the way I I think about it is I say there is a, in terms of most of the people in my book didn't vote, which is a sense of how this, you know how, fr- right. how frustrated they are, and so I would say that the thing I found interesting is the way I talk. I say it is: look, there's there's a frustration and an anger with the status quo amongst the white and black working class. How it gets rendered as a function of race. The whites can't can and do punch down. The blacks can't punch down. They have nothing to punch down against, <laughs> um, yeah. and they've been punched down at so many times. They they get why that's an awful strategy. So they don't do it. What they tend to, what they do is what I call justified um, cynicism. They just remove themselves from the system, faced with a frustration since they can't punch down, since they don't want to punch down. They just they they just don't vote, um, and we have a system that makes that very very that cynically takes advantage of that. But there's there's so many people I've met who just 
so many who didn't make it into the book black working class who just simply said like what's the point like you know we had our president it, nothing changed you know that was one of the yep. almost exact quote you know and so you know i was in milwaukee prior to the election and and the entirely black neighborhood there and they, as somebody, I think there was somebody. It was in Battle Creek, Michigan. Someone, a, a black, a black gentleman, told me, "Is like nobody, ha, nobody, nobody has the faith for Hillary. Just we don't have the, just you know, we, you know, the fire just isn't there." Um, and there was a sense of I'm not, I'm not trying to blame Trump's victory on the black working class at all. It was the white working class that went out and voted. The white working class could, had its frustration. They went out and voted. Um, they woke up and they voted, and. Some of that's just blind racism. Some of that's just a, a ability to punch down and do it. Also, some of it's what I call is is you know it's it's just it's it's um it's it's having the luxury of not of having being able to ignore the uh, ugly parts of Trump's agenda and not really think about them. You know that's yeah. kind of different from that's kind of different. That's a different form of racism. That's that's not as <laughs> as awful. It's just kind of like ah you know oh I forgot I don't really kind of I don't listen to that part of it. You know I just ignore it. Um, my my bigger frustration when I try to write about in my book when I try to get across is racism is not this static thing it doesn't it doesn't it 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 ebbs and flows and i think we've created this condition within the working class that is that's i try to say in my book that we've created the perfect condition for racism to thrive and we've done that because of what i call to to make a turn of phrase economic anxiety it's anxiety about the economics but it's also anxiety that economics is all that all that matters and so what i say about my book is i say look all the all the front row, the elites, the centrists really care about is 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 economics. They all they care about is profits. All they care about is the stock market. All they care about is efficiency. All they care about is just making money, and that's how they rank themselves. And those those are and all and consequently, all they really care about is credentials. How many? What's your resume look like? What school did you go to? And we reward credentials with immense amount of money these days. The problem is. The things that the, the the non-economic forms of meaning, the non-credential forms of meaning, the, the things that the black working class, the white working class, the Hispanic working class can take can can make value out of that doesn't require convent credentials are place, meaning being proud of where you're from and identifying that family. Um, you know, those that's something that that's meaningful to you. Faith, religion is another one. It you know, how do you measure that? But there, there's a lot of value there. And the other is race, racial identity. And the problem is, if we if we take away, and we have in many ways by 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 the elites have basically made fun of religion. They've told people just move why are you staying where you are so they've devalued faith they've devalued place what they haven't devalued is race and the problem is it's kind of like a rug that's too big to fit in a room if you push it down somewhere it's going to pop up somewhere else and the problem is the only non-credential form of meaning that has an out that people feel like they can they can go to is race and that's a real 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 big problem because that's where the white working class, I think, is going to be pushed into. Again, I'm not saying I, it's justified. I'm not. I, I, it's an awful thing, and we should do everything to fight it. But if we continue to deny um, people meaning by faith and place, and we continue to deny them an economic, you know, basically take their jobs away, the one place they're going to go to give them some form of community, to give them a, a place that, you know is is kind of white identity and it's unfortunate because i think it's going to continue to grow and i think the way you fight it a is to call it out like we like we do but it's also is to try to give provide alternatives you know and and i think we've created a system where those alternatives are harder and harder for people to you to, to to find so i yeah Go ahead, Jeff. Okay, yeah, I actually, I actually have a long thought on all this that I'm going to try to get out as succinctly as possible, but that kind of, I think, hits on a few threads we just discussed. Um, so, 
I read I read Chris's book. Like we 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 had actually been talking on Twitter, and Chris was like, "Yeah, I keep getting compared to like Tim Carney's Alienated America," and I don't know if that comparison is right or not. So like, I read Chris's book as like kind of a project to read Alienated America and a few other books as well. So I'm actually I'm on Carney's book right now, and the interesting thing about it is that it actually it grapple it does grapple in a certain way with some of the stuff we're talking about now. Like he. Um, like uh, Chris's book is very ethnographic and is very like talking to people on the ground. Carney's book has some of that too, but it builds in a lot more uh, kind of like from 30,000 feet analyses of social capital and that sort of thing. But like one of the things he addresses is that like in a lot of these communities that have been like uh, that have been kind of hollowed out, one of the things that stands out is like this loss of the 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 kind of the the civic space uh clubs churches places uh families like things that embed people in relationships and that give them a stake in the communal life where everybody feels like we are growing together and we have like, you know, mutual bonds and we owe one another things and we lift one another up together. Like all these sort of these sort of like interweaving institutions have just died off. And he doesn't he doesn't highlight this fact. But one of the things that you can pick up in the book is that. The thing that starts in all of these communities he visits, and I should say one thing he does, like he really, Carney really focuses on like the core Trump supporters, the places that supported Trump like early in the primaries before the rest of the Republicans got on board. So it's a different lens. But one of the things he finds, and like I said, he doesn't highlight it, but it's there in his reporting is that the loss of jobs is usually the thing that kicks off this downward spiral. Um, it's like, you know, the local factories shut down, uh, you know, people stopped buying the exports from the particular industry that was around. And I actually picked that up in Chris's book a lot, too. And Chris, you can correct me on this if I'm wrong, but I feel like one of the themes that I just kept seeing, like in all these places you visited, was that people would say it went down, like things started going downhill when all the jobs went away. We used to have good jobs. Like we had things we had like jobs that like gave us like you know a role to play and things to do and that gave us like a decent income with which to support ourselves and with which to like contribute to the church and like spread throughout the community and then that underlying infrastructure of jobs again went away because we decided we needed you know tighter monetary policy or free trade with china or whatnot and that was kind of the thing that kicked off the downward spiral. So I was, I mean, am I, I guess my first question would be, am I right in that impression? And the larger question would be, like, how do you see that relationship between, like, the kind of, is it right to see the jobs as, like, the underpinning upon which that, like, civic infrastructure is built? I think it, I think it, um, I mean, it's it's kind of the, yes, yes, you're right. Um, everybody in every town would point an empty lot and say, you know, it's gone <laughs> or point to a lot that had razor wire around it and say, you know, there used to be a factory there. And that's particularly true in places in, in, in the black communities like Selma, like Gary, Indiana, like Milwaukee, where, you know, they, 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 the older, the older members of the community will talk about how the drugs really didn't start coming in until the factories lost left. And then, you know, and all everybody, the 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 the, um, the factories gave the, the key that everybody talks about is not is stability, 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 stability. You could walk out of high school onto the factory floor. I've heard that phrase probably about a hundred times across the country by a hundred different people of, um, of every race. You know, I I literally they would say I walked out of high school graduation onto the factory floor and I had a job for my lifetime. You know, and it was not only a job for a lifetime; it's one that, and they could build up, they could build a home, and then they built a family, and then everything. Once that, once that, you know, or if I, if or I lost a job, I'd walk across the street and get and go to the next factory and get another job. That was what they'd say in Milwaukee. I would, I'd get lose a job there, and then I'd just walk across the street, go to another job, and that that it was it was it was the stability and and also you know the union halls and those things gave gave. 
I, I haven't read Carney's book, but I what I talk about is I try to say is everybody wants to be a member. A, everybody wants to be a valued member of something larger than themselves. They want to feel a valued member of something that treats them that is more important than what's here on life. They want to feel a member, a valued member of congregation. They want to feel a valued member of the bowling team, you know. And one of the things I try to write about in my, you know, so much of my project was about drugs. That sense of community, that sense of being a valued member is actually in the crack houses, in the drug traps. You know, it's, Drug use is all is heroin shooting is communal. It's something where you can ha- you can go into a crack house and you're accepted. You're a valued member of this community. It's not a community you may not like. People, you know, we we in society may not, may like or approve of, but it's a community. And I didn't write it about it in my book, but you know that's wasn't very far from Trump rallies. It felt the same sense. Here is a bunch of losers, who you know who who would found each other in this in this place and they were quote all of a sudden a value member of something you know that something was a was was awful but it was a value you know but they felt valued and so i think the loss of jobs is 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 kind of the 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 thing that it's like the i often say it's the anvil that broke the camel's back you know i mean it's just when the factory left to go to mexico or go to go to um you know china it just set off this downward this awful awful spiral that you know ends with this vacuum and into that vacuum comes drugs and if it's a white neighborhood a white identity politics yeah one thing you mentioned oh sorry ryan did you want to pick this one up Go, go ahead. Okay. Yeah. Well, the other thing that I, I remember you mentioning, Chris, in the book is that, um, and you were, you were talking about, uh, the drug communities and the crack houses, but it, it seems to me this could also apply, like, I mean, it maybe almost obviously applies to kind of the, the white ethno nationalism that underlies a lot of the Trump rallies is that this is a community that, like, you don't have to jump through a ton of hoops to enter into, right? Like you don't have to like plow your way through four years of college and another few years of grad school to be accepted in this community, right? You just, you just have to be willing to do the drugs and enjoy the drugs and be able to commune with other people about enjoying the drugs, or you just have to be white and you have to be able to commune with other people in your grievances with like, how you are treated and how you feel that, you know, inter that, that treatment intersects with your whiteness and how you want to try to like impose your sense of meaning on the rest of the country. Uh, am I onto something there? Yeah. You no, know, it's, it's very much. I say that in my book is there's no barriers to entry. There's, it's the non-credential forms of meaning. Like you don't, you, and the thing about non-credential forms of meaning that are so, the the ones the ones we should be approve of because they're not basically racist <laughs> is is place that's a place and faith now you can push back on faith being racist but the faiths I went to were not racist they were welcoming to everybody but those two the the church houses the small little congregations I ended up spending a lot of time in were very similar in that way to they didn't ask anything about you they just said, come on in man <laughs> you know as long as you try as long as you know wash away your sins and there was a real sense of of welcoming and you know and I remember going to a Trump rally and saying you know I thought I was going to find you know you know to use my language, the kids in the back row, I, you know, back of the bus, what I found was the people who, who you know, the people in the yearbook who didn't show up to class, <laughs> you know, for, for photo day, right? <laughs> the people who, who didn't, didn't show up to class, you know, there was a bunch of misfits and it was kind of like being in a drug trap too, you know, it was just like, it was the same sort of like, just come on in, man, we're all, you know, and then then it became, and, and, in, bo- and in both cases, the in terms of Trump rallies and the Trump rallies and the drug traps, they also became it became this self awareness of oh people think we're losers let's let's own that you know what i mean like oh like yo like i remember there once being in this like you know this bar you know like you know like um you know where trump trump people were were rallying and it was like yeah you know like yo you know I, I'll use a, a, a racial slur. You know, Polacks for for, for Trump. You know, <laughs> you know, Polish guys came in like they were making fun of 
people making fun of making fun of being stigmatized for liking Trump, you know. And the same thing, you go into drug places, they start owning, oh, like, yeah, we're losers, man. Look at us, we're heroin addicts. Yay, us. <laughs> it becomes yeah. this kind of like, you know, this this owning the stigma. And make in turning it into an identity, even, and that certainly is the case in Trump rallies, the ones I went to at least, where they they own the stigma, like okay, you're going to make fun of me for it, then I'm just going to I'm going to be that. Then you know, here you go. Um, yeah, that's all. Um, I've definitely noticed that you know that you could see that type of you know appropriating the 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 uh, denigrating uh, language in a lot of different contexts. Um, but I wanted to you know maybe. Maybe dig into this your 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 typology here, you know, because you, you have the the front row versus the the back row kids, and and that kind of you know you're talking about people with lots of education, um, you know, versus like the people who you know are high school dropouts or maybe they just made it through high school and so on. And certainly, like if you look at you know the the incomes by educational attainment. Uh, you know, people with advanced degrees are doing better than people, you know, who dropped out of high school. But if you look at, uh, you know, the income breakdown, like David Brooks was talking about how the top 20% are, are, are kind of hoarding all the opportunity. But um, Gabriel Zuckman posted some, you know, the in- income growth data uh, over the past, uh, from 1980 to 2014. And if you look at the top 20%, the bottom half of that group, so like the the you know 80th to 90th percentile, their actually their income declined over that period. Um, you look at the next five percent from you know from 95 to or 90 to 95 percentile, um, they're basically treading water. Uh, five uh, top 95 is the top top one percent. They're they're increasing a little bit, but it's the very tippy top, the point one percent. And especially the, or sorry, the one percent, and especially the point one percent, and especially, especially the point zero one percent, going way, way, way up into the stratosphere. And I wonder, you know, I think there definitely is this character, this the, the you know, this turning in among the sort of upper middle class, you know, the like setting up gated communities, and I don't want my kids going to school with black kids, and all like this type of you know, like defensiveness that, 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 uh, you see, but I kind of wonder if that isn't a response to not the front row kids, but like the one kid who ends up in control of a large corporation who is doing all of these things we're talking about, you know, um, rolling up giant monopolies and laying off 10,000 people or moving the entire business over to China to save, you know, five cents on, on labor costs and and so on and um do you think that 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 is a you know the 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 people the the kind of industrial bourgeoisie to coin a phrase is 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 an important element here in terms of like the 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 you know how these um communities uh react and have been you know uh bulldozed over the over the decades I, I think the I think the statistics are, are right. I think the the top the top the front front row is doing the best, and has won the outs the winner take all type type mentality. But I think the problem is is and what I try to get across um, subtly I hope in my book because I don't like to be accusing in my book. I try to make it something that's a, not a is more about the back row, not about the front row per se. Um, is um, I think us and i include myself in that i I don't know i don't want to throw you guys in there but i certainly am (laughs) in the front row um but what i call is you know the the educated elite um who may not necessarily i certainly did well monetarily um but not everybody in my position not everybody who has a phd does um but i think we in aggregate support the system that that has allowed that one percent to do extraordinarily well yeah and i think that's the problem the problem is is and I, in many ways you know people keep saying we people vote against their economic why do why do the poor vote against an economic interest i think the front row is voting against its economic interests against yes. the very very front row and you know it's like we this educated this 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 educated the educated elite supports this meritocracy and supports this this 
kind of shift towards hyper deregulated capitalism that has allowed the um, the the zero point zero one percent to do so extraordinarily well. I mean, I bet you that twenty percent, that top twenty percent that David Brooks is talking about, although isn't doing well economically, they they are personally doing well in terms of cultural capital. Uh, I mean, they they kind of they feel very like their lifestyle is is better in terms of like what it would have been when I was a kid, um, but. With, they supported NAFTA. They support free trade. They support all these things that has enabled <laughs> that that tiny minority of the rich to get even immensely wealthy. And that's my frustration is has been trying to tell the front row, the the top thirty percent who are who are generally the decision makers in our country, that the the system you support is actually really not it really massively hurting the poor. But I don't think it's doing you all that well either. <laughs> Yeah, I, yeah. I, I think this is absolutely right. And like, I've tried to, I've like, I've tried to hit on this a few times in my own work, but like, yeah, I think like, I think Chris's framework of the back row and the front row is really helpful, but I think we're right that like, we need to have like the kind of third party, which is like not even necessarily the 1%, but like, yeah, the 0.1, the 0.01%. And I think the way to understand it, at least in terms of like how I've, at least how I've come to understand it is that like, the entire economy is really structured around the preferences and desires and like, you know, wants of the 0.01%. And the rest of us are really to like greater or lesser degrees getting strip mined for the sake of these people. And the degree to which we are being strip mined is kind of the difference between the back row and the front row. Like the back row is the part that's just been wiped out. Like they're done. Like, you know, the companies like merged, the companies got offshored, like all the wealth got sucked out of their communities and there is nothing left and all the civil society went with it and they're done. And as a result, like, you know, we've had this contraction of economic opportunity and job creation to like the major urban hubs in the country. Um, and so the front row, like, yeah, like, like, you know, the wage premium for a college education isn't because college people are seeing their wages go up. It's because their wages are flat and like high school edu- people, educated people's wages are going down. So like the rot has already set in with the back row, but it's still creeping up for the rest of us. It's just we on the front row are sitting on these islands where we haven't like quite gotten consumed yet. And we're basically the ideological lackeys for the 0.01%. And I absolutely include myself in the front row. I'm trying to like not be one of the ideological lackeys, but there you go. (laughs) But I mean, like if you, if you, if you even, you know, if you were an educated, you know, if you have a PhD in, in generally sociology, economics or physics or like myself and you, in ninety in nineteen ninety or two thousand, didn't support free trade or didn't support NAFTA, you were considered an idiot. <laughs> you know, you're yep. like, why can't you see this? Or if you didn't support the, you know, and, and yes, the, you, you, five of your listeners are going to be PhDs in sociology who didn't support it, and I'm going to, they're going to tell me I'm an idiot. But <laughs> yes, there are people who didn't support it, and Has, I, hashtag I, not all PhD. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you, you guys were great, and I was wrong because I, I I supported it. Um, but the the issue was is just this the economic community the. PhDs in economics, the centrist economists, the kind of neoliberals groupthink, has such a strong hold on the top twenty percent in terms of the way to think that they they they, they I don't think they see that what they're doing is they, they, I know they don't see that they're destroying the poor because they just they just because again they don't so many of the so many of the things they just physically are removed from but also they're um they're not things you can measure you know you can't measure the loss of family you can't measure the loss of of um of faith and all those things but they're also going to it's coming for them you know i mean you, you, this kind of this kind of hyper efficiency hyper profit mentality you know just find the find the cheapest labor is is really all about screwing labor 
and in, empowering capital. And if you're not a capitalist, if you not if you don't own capital um, in large amounts, you're going to get screwed eventually by this system. So, where I think it's where I think David Brooks is right, and I, I dare I say, I say that carefully, um, <laughs> have, having not read that book, his 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 recent column, I skimmed it, is. Where the 20% has benefited from is a sense of feeling important, meaning they feel like they're on the right side of history. So it's, you know, you can be a, a person who's, quote, uh, you know, uh, uh, a professor of journalism and writes columns for the Washington Post and not be making more money than you were inflation adjusted 50 years ago, but your life is better as somebody who's now 60 close to 50 you know 55 years old your life is better than it was 40 years ago in terms of the you have a lot more you know the, the cities are better places to live you you feel you you feel more important you feel you're on the right side of history you feel like you're part of this big program that's you know it's moving things forward you know you got all these things changed global poverty is down all these metrics so i think there's a sense of feeling very good about oneself that one might not have felt 30 to 40 years ago. And I think that's important. You feel like you have a place, like the, the country values you. And in some senses, the one, top, top one, the very, very front row, the, the, the have, have done a good job of selling that to people by saying like, look, look at us, look, look at this great thing we did. Look at us at Davos. Aren't we great? And they feel they feel that that's an important place for them. Like the technocrats who, you know, put together the Euro region, they feel great. They feel like they're doing this wonderful thing. So I think that there's a sense of, and that's important, the sense of real empowerment and meaning. Well, what, we're literally talking about something that like Tim Carney and like others like Charles Murray have picked up on, which is that, and we're, we're talking about it through a completely different lens because they're all like, you know, freaking right-wing libertarians. But like, the the top 20% like still has its social capital right we the top 20% still has its meaning and its sense of belonging in various institutions and its sense of trust and its sense of you know uh interpersonal obligations and mutual support very much so i i i, I mean i i don't talk about it in explicit Economic, social capital terms in my book, but it's 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 under it should be there and uh, written kind of in 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 into the text that I think you know it's it's it just I think the the way I'd prefer to frame it is if you're not in the top twenty percent your life really sucks now <laughs> <laughs> I mean I don't I, I don't want to pick on the top twenty percent because I think again I I think the top twenty percent you know that 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 basically, which I include a lot of the media and a lot of the doctors and lawyers, you know, are very well-intentioned people. I don't, I, I'm not mad at them because I actually think they really do believe they're doing good things and they have good intentions. So, you know, I don't want to pick on them, but I think the problem is that the 80, I would rather focus on the problem that the, the, the bottom 80% is getting completely screwed over. <laughs> and I think th- what I hope my book does is, give people a sense of just how bad it is to be poor in this country. 